Chapter 4, Part 4 of Apologia Pro Vita Sua by John Henry Cardinal Newman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bill McGillivray. Chapter 4, Section 2. The letter which I have last inserted is addressed to my dear friend Dr. Russell, the present president of Maynooth. He had perhaps more to do with my conversion than anyone else. He called upon me in passing through Oxford in the summer of 1841, and I think I took him over some of the buildings of the university. He called again another summer, on his way from Dublin to London. I do not recollect that he said a word on the subject of religion on either occasion. He sent me at different times several letters. He was always gentle, mild, unobtrusive, uncontroversial. He let me alone. He also gave me one or two books, Veron's Rule of Faith and some treaties of the Wallenboroughs was one, a volume of St. Alfonso Ligure sermons was another, and it is those sermons that my letter to Dr. Russell relates. Now it must be observed that the writings of St. Alfonso, as I knew them by the extracts commonly made from them, prejudiced me as much against the Roman Church as anything else on account of what was called their mariolatry but there was nothing of the kind in this book i wrote to dr russell whether anything had been left out of the translation he answered that there certainly were omissions in one sermon about the blessed virgin this omission in the case of a book intended for catholics at least showed that such passages as are found in the works of italian authors were not acceptable to every part of the catholic world such devotional manifestations in honor of our lady had been my great crux as regards catholicism i say frankly i do not fully enter into them now i trust i do not love her the less because i cannot enter into them they may be fully explained and defended but sentiments and tastes do not run with logic they are suitable for italy but they are not suitable for england but over and above england my own case was special. From a boy I had been led to consider that my Maker and I, his creature, were the two beings luminescently such in rerum natura. I will not here speculate, however, about my own feelings. Only this I know full well now, and did not know then, that the Catholic Church allowed no image of any sort, material or immaterial, no dogmatic symbols, no rite, no sacrament, no saint, not even the Blessed Virgin herself, to come between the soul and its creator. It is face to face, solus cum solo, in all matters between man and his God. He alone creates, he alone has redeemed. Before his awful eyes we go in death. In the vision of him is our eternal beatitude. 1. Solus cum solo. I recollect but indistinctly what I gained from the volume of which I have been speaking, but it must have been something considerable. At least I had got a key to a difficulty. In these sermons, parentheses, or rather heads of sermons, as they seem to be taken down by a hearer, close parentheses, there is much of what would be called legendary illustration, but the substance of them is plain, practical, awful preaching upon the great truths of salvation. 
what i can speak of with greater confidence is the effect produced on me a little later by studying the exercises of saint ignatius for here again in a matter consistent with the purest and most direct acts of religion in the intercourse between god and the soul during a season of recollection of repentance of good resolution of inquiry into vocation the soul was sola cum solo there was no cloud interposed between the creature and the object of his face and love the command practically enforced was my son give me thy heart the devotion then to angels and saints as little interfered with my intercommunicable glory of the eternal as the love which we bear our friends and relations our tender human sympathies are inconsistent with that supreme homage of the heart to the unseen which really does but sanctify and exalt not jealously destroy what is of earth at a later date dr russell sent me a large bundle of penny or halfpenny books of devotion of all sorts as they are found in the booksellers shops at rome and on looking them over i was quite astonished to find how different they were from what i had fancied how little there was in them to which i could really object i have given an account of them in my essay on the development of doctrine dr russell sent me st alfonso's book at the end of eighteen forty two however it was still a long time before i got over my difficulty on the score of devotions paid to the saints perhaps as i judged from a letter i have turned up it was some way into eighteen forty four before i could be said fully to have got over it two i am not sure that i did not also at this time feel the force of another consideration the idea of the blessed virgin was as it was magnified in the church of rome as time went on but so were all the christian ideas as that of the blessed eucharist the whole scene of pale faint distant apostolic christianity is seen in rome as though a telescope or magnifier the harmony of the whole however is of course what it was it is unfair then to take one roman idea that of the blessed virgin out of what may be called its context three thus i am brought to the principle of development of doctrine in the christian church to which i gave my mind at the end of eighteen forty two I had made mention of it in the passage which I quoted many pages back in Home Thoughts Abroad, published in 1836, and even at an earlier date. I had introduced it into my history of the Arians in 1832, nor have I ever lost sight of it in my speculations, and it is certainly recognized in the treatise of Vincent of Larens, which has so often been taken as a basis of Anglicanism in eighteen forty three i began to consider it attentively i made it the subject of my last university sermon on february second and the general view to which i came is stated thus in a letter to a friend of the date of july fourteenth eighteen forty four it will be observed that now as before my issue is still creed versus church the kind of considerations which weigh with me are such as the following one i am far more certain according to the fathers that we are in a state of culpable separation than that developments do not exist under the gospel and that the roman developments are not the true ones two i am far more certain that our modern doctrines are wrong 
than that the Roman modern doctrines are wrong. 3. Granting that the Roman special doctrines are not found drawn out in the early Church, yet I think there is sufficient trace of them in it to recommend and prove them on the hypothesis of the Church having a divine guidance, though not sufficient to prove them by itself, so that the question simply turns on the nature of the promise of the Spirit made to the Church. 4. The proof of the Roman modern doctrine is as strong or stronger in antiquity as that of certain doctrines which both we and Romans hold. For example, there is more of evidence in antiquity for the necessity of unity than for the apostolical succession, for the supremacy of the see of Rome than for the presence in the Eucharist, for the practice of invocation than for certain books in the present canon of Scripture, etc., etc. 5. The analogy of the Old Testament and also of the New leads to the acknowledgement of doctrinal developments. 4. And thus I was led on to a further consideration. I saw that the principle of development not only accounted for certain facts, but was in itself a remarkable philosophical phenomenon, giving a character to the whole course of Christian thought. It was discernible from the first year of the Catholic teachings up to the present day, and gave to that teaching a unity and individuality. It serves as a sort of test which the Anglicans could not exhibit, that modern Rome was in truth ancient Antioch, Alexandra, and Constantinople, just as a mathematical curve has its own law and expression. 5. And thus again I was led on to examine more attentively what I doubt not was in my thoughts long before, namely the concatenation of argument by which the mind ascends from its first to its final religious idea and i came to this conclusion that there was no medium in true philosophy between atheism and catholicity and that a perfectly consistent mind under those circumstances in which it finds itself here below must embrace either the one or the other and i hold this still I am a Catholic by virtue of my believing in a God, and if I am asked why I believe in a God, I answer that it is because I believe in myself, for I feel it impossible to believe in my own existence, and of that fact I am quite sure, without believing also in the existence of Him, who believes as a personal, all-seeing, all-judging being in my conscience. Now I dare say I have not expressed myself with philosophical correctness, because I am not given myself to the study of what metaphysicians have said on the subject, but I think I have a strong true meaning in what I say which will stand examination. 6. Moreover, I found a corroboration of the fact of the logical connection of theism with Catholicism in a consideration parallel to that which I had adopted on the subject of development of doctrine. The fact of the operation from first to last of the principle of development of the truth of revelation is an argument in favor of the identity of Roman and primitive Christianity. But as there is a law which acts upon the subject matter of dogmatic theology, so is there a law in the matter of religious faith. In the first chapter of this narrative, I spoke of certitude as the consequence, divinely intended and enjoined upon us, of the accumulative force of certain given reasons which taken one by one were only probabilities let it be recollected 
that I am historically relating my state of mind at the period of my life which I am surveying. I am not speaking theologically, nor have I any intention of going into the controversy or of defending myself, but speaking historically of what I held in 1843-1844. I say that I believe in a God on the ground of probability, that I believe in Christianity on a probability, and that I believe in Catholicism on a probability, and that these three grounds of probability, distinct from each other, of course in subject matter, were still all of them one and the same in nature of proof as being probabilities, probabilities of a special kind, a cumulative, a transcendent probability, but still probability, inasmuch as he who made us has so willed that in mathematics indeed we should arrive at certitude by rigid demonstration, but in religious inquiry we should arrive at certitude by accumulated probabilities. He has willed, I say, that we should so act, and, as willing it, he cooperates with us in our acting, and thereby enables us to do that which he wills us to do, and carries us on, if our will does not cooperate with his, to a certitude which rises higher than the logical forces of our conclusions. And thus I came to see clearly, and to have a satisfaction in seeing, that in being led on into the Church of Rome, I was not proceeding on any secondary or isolated grounds of reason, or by controversial points in detail, but was protected and justified, even in the use of those secondary or particular arguments, by a great and broad principle. But let it be observed that I am stating a matter of fact, not defending it, and if any Catholic says in consequence that I have been converted in a wrong way, I cannot help that now. I have nothing more to say on the subject of the change of my religious opinions. On the one hand, I came gradually to see that the Anglican Church was formally in the wrong, on the other hand, that the Church of Rome was formally in the right, then that no valid reason could be assigned for continuing in the Anglican, and again that no valid objection could be taken to joining the Roman. Then I had nothing more to learn. What still remained for my conversion was not further change of opinion, but to change opinion itself into the clearness and firmness of intellectual conviction. Now I proceed to detail the acts to which I committed myself during the last stage of my inquiry. In 1843 I took two very significant steps. One, in February, I made a formal retraction of all the hard things which I had said against the Church of Rome. Two, in September, I resigned the living of St. Mary's Littlemore, included, I will speak of these two acts separately. One, the words in which I made my retraction had given rise to much criticism, after quoting a number of passages from my writings against the Church of Rome, which I withdrew, I ended thus, If you ask me how an individual could venture, not simply to hold, but to publish such views of a communion so ancient, so wide-spreading, so fruitful in saints, I answer that I said to myself, I am not speaking my own words. I am but following almost a consensus of the divines of my own Church, they have ever used the strongest language against Rome, even the most able and learned of them. I wish to throw myself into their system. While I say what they say, I am safe. 
Such views, too, are necessary for our position. Yet I have reason to fear still that such language is to be ascribed in no small measure to an impetuous temper, a hope of approving myself to persons I respect, and a wish to repel the charge of Romanism. These words have been, and are, again and again, cited against me, as if a confession that, when in the Anglican Church, I said things against Rome which I did not really believe. For myself, I cannot understand how any impartial man can so take them, and I have explained them in print several times. I trust that by this time their plain meaning has been satisfactorily brought out by what I have said in former portions of this narrative. Still I have a word or two to say in addition to my former remarks upon them. In the passage in question I apologize for saying out in controversy charges against the Church of Rome, which withal I affirm that I fully believed at the time when I made them. What is wonderful in such an apology? There are surely many things a man may hold, which at the same time he may feel that he has no right to say publicly, and which may annoy him that he has said publicly. The law recognizes this principle. In our own time men have been imprisoned and fined for saying true things of a bad king. The maxim has been held that the greater the truth, the greater is the libel, and so as to the judgment of society, a just indignation would be felt against a writer who brought forward wantonly the weakness of a great man, though the whole world knew that they existed. No one is at liberty to speak ill of another without a justifiable reason, even though he knows he is speaking truth, and the public knows it too. Therefore, though I believe what I have said against the Roman Church, nevertheless I could not religiously speak it out unless I was really justified, not only in believing ill, but in speaking ill. I did believe what I said on what I thought to be good reason, but had I also a just cause for saying out what I believed? I thought I had, and it was this, namely that to say out what I believed was simply necessary in the controversy for self-defense. It was impossible to let it alone. The Anglican position could not be satisfactorily maintained without assailing the Roman. In this, as in most cases of conflict, one party was right or the other, not both, and the best defense was to attack. Is not this almost a truism in the Roman controversy? Is it not what everyone says who speaks on the subject at all? Does any serious man abuse the Church of Rome for the sake of abusing her, or because that abuse justifies his own religious position? What is the meaning of the very word Protestantism, but that there is a call to speak out? This, then, is what I said. I know I spoke strongly against the Church of Rome, but it was no mere abuse, for I had a serious reason for doing so. But not only did I think such language necessary for my church's religious position, but I recollected that all the great Anglican divines had thought so before me. They had thought so, and they had acted accordingly, and therefore I observed in the passage in question with much propriety that I had not used strong language simply out of my own head, but that in doing so I was following the track or rather reproducing the teaching of those who had preceded me. I was pleading guilty to using violent language, but was pleading also that there were extenuating circumstances in the case, 
We all know the story of the convict who on the scaffold bit off his mother's ear. By doing so, he did not deny the fact of his own crime for which he was to hang, but he said that his mother's indulgence when he was a boy had a good deal to do with it. In like manner, I had made a charge, and I had made it ex animo, but I accused others of having, by their own example, led me into believing it and publishing it. I was in a humor, certainly, to bite off their ears. I will freely confess, indeed I said it, some pages back, that I was angry with the Anglican divines. I thought they had taken me in. I had read the fathers with their eyes. I had sometimes trusted their quotations or their reasoning, and from reliance on them, I had used words or made statements which by right I ought rigidly to have examined myself. I had thought myself safe while I had their warrant for what I said. I had exercised more faith than criticism in the matter. This did not imply any broad misstatements on my part arising from reliance on their authority, but it implied carelessness in matters of detail, and this, of course, was a fault. But there was a far deeper reason for my saying what I said in this matter, on which I have not hitherto touched, and it was this. The most oppressive thought in the whole process of my change of opinion was the clear anticipation verified by the event that it would issue in the triumph of liberalism. Against the anti-dogmatic principles I had thrown my whole mind, yet now I was doing more than anyone else could do to promote it. I was one of those who had kept it at bay in Oxford for so many years, and thus my very retirement was its triumph. The men who had driven me from Oxford were distinctly the liberals. It was they who had opened the attack upon Tract 90, and it was they who would gain a second benefit if I went on to abandon the Anglican Church. But this was not all. As I have already said, there are but two alternatives, the way to Rome and the way to atheism. Anglicanism is the halfway house on the one side, and liberalism is the halfway house on the other. How many men were there, as I knew full well, who would not follow me now in my advance from Anglicanism to Rome, but would at once leave Anglicanism and me for the liberal camp? It is not at all easy, humanly speaking, to wind up an Englishman to a dogmatic level. I had done so in good measure, in the case both of young men and of laymen, the Anglican via media being the representative of dogma. The dogmatic and the Anglican principles were one, as I had taught them, but I was breaking the via media to pieces, and would not dogmatic faith altogether be broken up in the minds of a great number by the demolition of the via media? Oh, how unhappy this made me! I heard once from an eyewitness the account of a poor sailor whose legs were shattered by a ball in the action off Algiers in 1816, and who was taken below for an operation. The surgeon and the chaplain persuaded him to have a leg off. It was done, and the tourniquet applied to the wound. Then they broke it to him that he must have the other off too. The poor fellow said, You should have told me that, gentlemen, and deliberately unscrewed the instrument and bled to death. Would not that be the case with many friends of my own? How could I ever hope to make them believe in a second theology, when I had cheated them in the first? With what face could I publish a new edition of a dogmatic creed and ask them to receive it as gospel? Would it not be plain to them that no certainty was to be found anywhere? 
while in my defence i could not but make a lame apology however it was the true one namely that i had not read the fathers cautiously enough that in such nice points as those which determined the angle of divergence between the two churches i had made considerable miscalculations but how came this about why the fact was unpleasant as it was to avow that i had leaned too much upon assertions of user jeremy taylor or barrow and had been deceived by them valet quantum it was all that could be said this then was the chief reason of the wording of the retraction which has given so much offence because the bitterness with which it was written was not understood and the following letter will illustrate it april third eighteen forty four i wish to remark on william's chief distress that my changing my opinion seemed to unsettle one's confidence in truth and falsehood as external things and led one to be suspicious of the new opinion as one became distrustful of the old now in what i shall say i am going to speak in favour of my second thoughts in comparison to my first but against such scepticism and unsettlement about truth and falsehood generally the idea of which is very painful the case with me then was this and not surely an unnatural one as a matter of feeling and of duty i threw myself into the system which i found myself in i saw that the english church had a theological idea or theory as such and i took it up i read laud on tradition and thought it as i still think it very masterly the anglican theory was very distinctive i admired it and took it on faith it did not i think occur to me to doubt it i saw that it was able and supported my learning and i felt it was a duty to maintain it further on looking into antiquity and reading the fathers i saw such portions of it as i examined fully confirmed for example the supremacy of scripture there was only one question about which i had a doubt namely whether it would work for it has never been more than a paper system so far from my change of opinion having any fair tendency to unsettle persons as to truth and falsehood viewed as objective realities it should be considered whether such change is not necessary if truth be a real objective thing and be made to confront a person who has been brought up in a system short of truth surely the continuance of a person who wishes to go right in a wrong system and not his giving it up would be that which militated against the objectiveness of truth leading as it would to the suspicion that one thing and another were equally pleasing to our maker where men were sincere nor surely is it a thing i need be sorry for that i defended the system in which i found myself and thus have had to unsay my words for is it not one's duty instead of beginning with criticism to throw oneself generously into the form of religion which is providentially put before one is it right or is it wrong to begin with private judgment may we not on the other hand look for a blessing through obedience even to an erroneous system and a guidance even by means of it out of it were those who were strict and conscientious in their judaism or those who were lukewarm and sceptical more likely to be led into christianity when christ came yet in proportion to their previous zeal would be their appearance of inconsistency 
Certainly I have always contended that obedience even to an erring conscience was the way to gain light, and that it mattered not where a man began, so that he began on what came to hand and in faith, and that anything might become a divine method of truth, that to the pure all things are pure, and have a self-correcting virtue and a power of germinating. And though I have no right at all to assume that this mercy is granted to me, yet the fact that a person in my situation may have it granted to him seems to me to remove the perplexity which my change of opinion may occasion. It may be said, I have said it to myself, why, however, did you publish? Had you waited quietly, you would have changed your opinion without any of the misery which now is involved in the change, of disappointing and distressing people. I answered that things are so bound up together as to form a whole, and one cannot tell what is or is not a condition of what. I do not see how possibly I could have published the tracts or other works professing to defend our church without accompanying them with a strong protest or argument against Rome. The one obvious objection against the whole Anglican line is that it is Roman, so that I really think there was no alternative between silence altogether in forming a theory and attacking the Roman system. 2. And now, in the next place, as to my resignation of St. Mary's, which was the second of the steps which I took in 1843. The ostensible direct and sufficient reason for my doing so was the persevering attack of the bishops on Tract 90. I alluded to it in the letter which I have inserted above, addressed to one of the most influential among them. A series of their ex-cathedra judgments, lasting through three years, and including a notice of no little severity in a charge of my own bishop, came as near to the condemnation of my tract, and, so far, to a repudiation of the ancient Catholic doctrine, which was the scope of the tract, as was possible in the Church of England. It was in order to shield the tract from such a condemnation that I had, at the time of its publication, in 1841, so simply put myself at the disposal of the higher powers in London. At that time, all that was distinctly contemplated in the way of censure was contained in the message which my bishop sent me, that the tract was objectionable. That, I thought, was the end of the matter. I had refused to suppress it, and they had yielded that point. Since I published the former portion of this narrative, I have found what I wrote to Dr. Pusey on March 24th while the matter was in progress. The more I think of it, I said, the more reluctant I am to suppress Tract 90, though of course I will do it if the bishops wish it. I cannot, however, deny that I shall feel it a severe act. According to the notes which I took of the letters or messages which I sent to him on that and the following days, I wrote successively, my first feeling was to obey without a word. I will obey still, but my judgment has steadily risen against it ever since. Then in the postscript, if I have done any good to the church, I do ask the bishops this favor, as my reward for it, that he would not insist on a measure from which I think good will not come. However, I will submit to him. Afterwards I got stronger still and wrote, I have almost come to the resolution if the bishop publicly intimates that I must suppress the tract, or speak strongly in his charge against it, to suppress it indeed, 
but to resign my living also. I could not in conscience act otherwise. You may show this in any quarter you please. All my then hopes, all my satisfaction at the apparent fulfillment of those hopes, was at an end in 1843. It is not wonderful, then, that in May of that year, when two out of three years were gone, I wrote on the subject of my retiring from St. Mary's to the same friend whom I had consulted upon it in 1840. But I did more now. I told him my great unsettlement of mind on the question of the churches. I will insert portions of two of my letters. May 4th, 1843. At present I fear, as far as I can analyze my own convictions, I consider the Roman Catholic communion to be the Church of the Apostles, and that what grace is among us, which through God's mercy is not little, is extraordinary, and from the overflowings of his dispensation. I am very far more sure that England is in schism than that the Roman additions to the primitive creed may not be developments arising out of a keen and vivid realizing of the divine depositum of faith. You will now understand what gives edge to the bishop's charges, without any undue sensitiveness on my part. They distress me in two ways. First, as being in some sense protest and witnesses to my conscience against my own unfaithfulness to the English Church, and next as being samples of her teaching, and tokens how very far she is from ever aspiring to Catholicity. Of course my being unfaithful to a trust is my great subject of dread, as it has long been, as you know. When he wrote to make natural objections to my purpose, such as the apprehension that the removal of clerical obligations might have the indirect effect of propelling me towards Rome, I answered, May 18, 1843. My office or charge at St. Mary's is not a mere state, but a continual energy. People assume and assert certain things of me in consequence. With what sort of sincerity can I obey the bishop? How am I to act in the frequent cases in which one way or another of the Church of Rome comes into consideration? I have to the utmost of my power tried to keep persons from Rome, and with some success, but even a year and a half since, my arguments, though more efficacious with the persons I aimed at than any others could be, were of a nature to infuse great suspicion of me into the minds of lookers-on. By retaining St. Mary's, I am an offense and a stumbling block. Persons are keen-sighted enough to make out what I think on certain points, and then they infer that such opinions are compatible with holding situations of trust in our church. A number of younger men take the validity of their interpretations of the articles, etc., from me on faith. Is not my present position a cruelty as well as a treachery towards the church? I do not see how I can either preach or publish again while I hold St. Mary's, but consider again the following difficulty in such a resolution, which I must state at some length. Last long vacation the idea suggested itself to me of publishing the lives of the English saints, and I had a conversation with a publisher upon it. I thought it would be useful, as employing the minds of men who were in danger of running wild, bringing them from doctrine to history and from speculation to fact, again as giving them an interest in the English soil and the English church in keeping them from seeking sympathy in Rome, as she is, and further as tending to promote the spread of right views. 
but within the last month it has come upon me that if the scheme goes on it will be a practical carrying out of number ninety from the character of the usages and opinions of anti-reformation times it is easy to say why will you do anything why won't you keep quiet what business had you to think of any such plan at all but i cannot leave a number of poor fellows in the lurch i am bound to do my best for a great number of people both in oxford and elsewhere if i did not act others would find means to do so well the plan has been taken up with great eagerness and interest many men are setting to work i set down the names of men most of them engaged the rest half engaged and probably some actually writing about thirty names follow some of them at the time of the school of dr arnold others of dr pusey's some my personal friends and of my own standing others whom i hardly knew while of course the majority were of the party of the new movement i continue the plan has gone so far that it will create surprise and talk were it now suddenly given over yet how is it compatible with my holding st mary's being what i am end of chapter four part four